From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Two thousand twenty-one is coming to a close, and we're at the halfway point in Ohio's one hundred thirty-fourth legislative session. So, where are we with all the pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment bills moving through the House and Senate? Are we getting close on constitutional carry? Are there any anti-gun bills on the move? That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by our Legislative Affairs Director, Rob Sexton, for a year-end report on Ohio gun legislation. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dean. It's great to be back. Rob, we're getting close to the end of 2021, and I thought we should give people a report on where we are with all these gun bills that we have currently in the state house, and I just know that legislation can be confusing, so I, I want to go over a couple things before we get started. The first is to remind people that Ohio's legislative session lasts two years. Yes. Now I know that this is different in every state. What is it, Texas, that meets for a, a few weeks and that's it? Yeah, about three months every other year. Yeah, but Ohio, we have a a full two-year session. So the current session began on January 1st of this year, and it ends on December 31st of next year. So basically, we're right about at the halfway point. Another way of looking at that is we have another year to pass bills. Although we have elections coming up, and we'd very much like to get the important bills passed before the primaries in early May. Yes. So that's one thing. The other is that just so people understand, because when we report on these bills passing, that there are House bills and there are Senate bills. So any particular bill has to pass the chamber where it originates and it has to pass the other chamber for before it goes to the governor for his signature. So a House bill, for example, has to pass through the House and then gets introduced in the, into the Senate and has to pass through that and vice versa. So even if bills are similar, they have to go the full journey through both chambers. And the one other thing that I just wanted to mention, just so that people understand the work that goes into this, 99% of the work that goes into passing bills happens before there's a hearing. I think there's a tendency to think, because we report on hearings and we show what our testimony is, there's a tendency for people to think that that's lobbying, that you show up, you read your testimony, you sit down, and that's how you lobby. Well, that's maybe 1% of it. Most of the work happens before you even walk into the hearing room. I mean, let's just be completely honest. Hearings tend to be performance a little bit. You know, it's performative. You're there to state officially your position publicly, but 99% of the work has happened before that. So, Rob, is there anything else that people should know just so that they understand the process and the work that goes into all of this before we dive into all these bills? 
Yes, uh, I guess one aspect to elaborate on what you just said about where the work gets done. So even after a bill's been introduced, you know, when, when there are discussions to work with legislators on what they're willing to vote for or what would make them vote no if we want them to vote no, that happens also in face-to-face meetings, you know, between uh, BFA and you know, key legislators or from, you know, constituent gun owners who contact their own legislators. But that process of how a bill is actually passed or defeated, uh, it, it happens throughout the process, but it doesn't happen on the stage in those committee rooms. It happens very much through a, through spade work, continual dialogue with those legislators, and, and ultimately that's what really uh, makes a difference whether you win or lose. Another way to look at it is when legislators have bills that they want to pass, they're not the experts in everything because they're not dealing just with gun bills. They're dealing with all sorts of subject matter, and you call in experts, and that's the way, that's what they're supposed to do. There's a lot of talk about lobbyists and you know how bad lobbyists are and all of that, but really lobbyists are subject matter experts who go in and talk to legislators so that if there's a bill people support, they can write the bill correctly. It can go through the process correctly. It's not doing anything bad. And without those experts, the lobbyists going in there to help them craft those bills and line up support, make sure that you have the, all the votes necessary, bills don't get passed. Legislators just can't do it all. I mean, that's the way I look at it is we're a subject matter expert on firearms because we're on the ground, we know how things work, and we need to be there as that resource to make sure that these bills happen as uh, well as, as they can. Not that we're pulling strings, because legislators are ultimately in control of that legislation, but we're there to try to make sure that things go correctly. Is that a, yes. is that a fair statement? Yes, and I, and I think we're also there to provide background. You know, they'll have questions. How has this worked in other states? You know, or what are the stats that are, that we found over the last 10 years on a particular subject? So, you know, it's our job to enable legislators to be able to vote our way by providing them the information that justifies what we want. So let's go ahead and dive into these bills. And just to save time, I'm going to do the anti-gun bills first because really there's not a whole lot to say about those. There are nine bills, by my count, that we would call anti-gun, anti-freedom, anti-liberty bills, anti-Second Amendment bills. There are nine of them. One has had a sponsor hearing where the sponsor gets up and said, this is my bill and this is why you should pass it. The other eight have had no hearings and no movement at all. So I think we're holding the line on the bad gun bills. I don't have anything other to, to say about that because there's nothing happening. Right. We're very fortunate right now to have a very pro-Second Amendment legislature. You know, they don't always do everything we ask, but they've been really good about defeating or killing legislation. That it's an outright attack on the Second Amendment. You know, everything from preemption to universal background checks to, you know, repealing duty to retreat. You know, they, they've killed them all so far. And, and really, that's the position we're in this year, too. And so that's a good thing. So none of these bills have really gone anywhere. Right. Now, to turn our attention to what we would call the pro-gun, pro-liberty, pro-freedom, pro-Second Amendment bills, we have 15 bills. 
I don't know about other states, but, you know, that's a lot of bills to be dealing with. So, Rob, let's just move through these in numerical order, and we'll do the House bills first and the Senate bills second. And, and by the way, all of these bills are on our website. If you click on the legislation link on the home page, it will take you to a page we've set up that lists all of the bills we support, all of the bills we oppose. So you can follow along as you're listening to this, or you can reference that at any point. We also have that in the newsletter uh, in, a, in a shortened form. At least we have the pro-gun bills that we're supporting. So the first bill, HB 12, and this is to enforce constitutional rights. I'm not sure that this is completely a Second Amendment bill. It's really more broadly about constitutional rights. This has had no hearings. It's really not going anywhere. And honestly, I'm not sure what to say about it other than that. It, this is uh, sponsored by Diane Grindel, and it was introduced a while ago, and it really hasn't gone anywhere, Rob. Right. You know, House Bill 12, and of course, the next one we're going to talk about, House Bill 62, they're both reactions by Ohio legislators, uh, you know, trying to put up defenses against federal overreach, which, of course, with the Democrats taking over in Washington and, you know, President Biden being elected, there's been a lot of talk about the feds infringing on certain rights and obviously the Second Amendment being one of them. And I think House Bill 12 is, you know, one of the many attempts to try to find some sort of defense uh, for Ohioans against constitutional abuses by the federal government. Right. And a lot of this talk, and this next bill, by the way, let me just move ahead to this, HB 62, and that's to designate Ohio a Second Amendment sanctuary state. Sponsors are Mike Loichek and Diane Grindel. Right. Now, we were hearing a lot more about sanctuary bills, sanctuary states, sanctuary counties, sanctuary cities earlier in the year. We're really starting to step into election season now. And the dialogue on the national level has just changed. We're not hearing a whole lot about sanctuary stuff at the moment. Right. So I think that, that that was really hot for a while, and then it kind of died down. The whole point of this bill, HB 62, was to designate the state of Ohio as a Second Amendment sanctuary state. And the name of the act was going to be the Ohio Second Amendment Safe Haven Act. Now, there have been three hearings on this bill. The problem, as I see it, and we've expressed this, is that sanctuary policy in bills like this tend to run either too cold or too hot. So some of them are just resolutions that have no force of law. They sound great. They basically say, here's what we think, but it doesn't really help people because they're not laws. They're just resolutions. The ones that run too hot, like this one, I'm, I'm afraid, try to nullify federal law. And unfortunately, while that sounds really great when you're reading it, it violates the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution. You just can't have a state law that nullifies federal law. Uh, the way to look at this is it just presents a bad argument. It basically says we're going to protect constitutional rights by ignoring the Constitution. And it just, it doesn't work that way. And we've suggested a better way to thread this needle is to rewrite the bill and simply say that when we see bad federal laws, the state of Ohio just won't enforce it. Right. 
Right, and I think it's important because there's such strong feelings and fears about what the feds have, have threatened that there's this idea, well, heck, you know, you have sanctuary cities on immigration, so why aren't we entitled to the same type of uh, reaction? And the, and the reason why is because other states that have passed this very law have had gun owners try to use that sanctuary law in their state as a defense and, and they've been uh, they've been incarcerated for it. So, you know, I, I think BFA never wants to advise Ohioans that they have protections that they really don't have and wind up having a otherwise law-abiding person sit in prison over it. So the solution you're talking about, that Ohio wouldn't enforce those laws, I don't know if that's a perfect solution, but at least it doesn't land some trusting gun owner in prison thinking they've got some Ohio protection that somehow trumps federal law because, as you say, that's an unconstitutional concept. Well, if the model, Rob, is some of these cities, like Columbus, Ohio, by the way, which is a sanctuary city for immigration, the model is they're just not going to enforce the law. They're not trying to nullify federal law. Right. They're just not going to enforce it. So, I mean, I know, for example, I live not in Columbus but in an adjacent suburb I know exactly where the immigrants are. The police know where they are. There's certain hotels. Uh, there's certain neighborhoods where you have a lot of illegal immigrants. Everybody knows where they are, but no laws are being enforced against them if they're within the city of Columbus. So they're not nullifying the law. They're just not enforcing it. Right. And so that's the model. Uh, it, it That seems to work with some cities with immigration. So if we're going to do a bill like this, I think that would be the way to rewrite the bill. Just don't enforce it. And as has been pointed out, the federal government just doesn't have the personnel to enforce gun laws. Right. And that doesn't mean that that it's legal to do something. If it's still illegal on the federal level, it's going to continue to be illegal. But it just improves your chances uh, about the, the law not being enforced. As long as you understand how that works, that you're still taking a risk. But uh, so we'll continue to watch HB 62. That brings us to HB 89 to repeal the duty to promptly inform. Now, this one's actually passed through the committee. And the thing to, to point out about this is the current law in Ohio says that if you're carrying a concealed handgun, you have to promptly, I'm doing air quotes here, promptly (laughs) inform a police officer that you you have the firearm and that you have a license. The problem with that is nobody knows what promptly means. People have gotten trouble, so this bill is trying to fix that by saying that if an officer wants to know, an officer asks. However, even though this has passed through committee, I think we should point out that this is something that's dealt with in the constitutional carry bills that we're going to discuss as a part of constitutional carry. You're just not going to have to promptly inform. And I believe that is in both of the bills, uh, both of the constitutional carry bills. Is that right, Rob? That's correct. And the sponsor of House Bill 89 now sees his bill as a stopgap. You know, God forbid constitutional carry doesn't get done he could still attack the duty to inform uh, in that case. But, of course, we're all very hopeful and feel very good about our prospects to tackle this issue as part of the greater constitutional carry debate. And then we have HB 99, 
and the topic of this bill has been in the news quite a bit. This is about armed school personnel. This all started with a Bloomberg-sponsored lawsuit where uh, they were attacking the idea of teachers and administrators and other school personnel going armed in a school. So we won't go through the whole thing, but there was a big court case. We were involved in that, and we were— our reading of the law is that local school boards have complete control over their security. However, the reading of the Bloomberg folks were know that you have to essentially be a police officer. You have to have over 700 hours of training before you can carry in a school and, because that's what the OPATA, which is the organization that trains Ohio officers, that's what police have to go through in that program, over 700 hours. Right. which is absurd. Um, and we have this bill because it ended up in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court gave us a bad ruling. So right now, all the programs around Ohio where you had armed school personnel, well, they're just wide open now. In fact, I think, what did we say? There, there were 70 counties that had at least one school uh, that had armed personnel. Well, I, I, think there, I think there are more than that. I mean, uh, the Faster Saves Lives program that uh, is run by our foundation has trained people, I mean, thousands of people, teachers and administrators all over the state and in other states. And so all of that basically is just dead in the water right now. Yeah. So right now those schools are sitting ducks for some of the crazy stuff we've seen happening. House Bill 99 is an attempt to reestablish the ability of a local school board to do that. This version of House Bill 99 that's currently being discussed involves some minimal training, I think 20 hours on top of your eight hours you would need for a CHL. You know, I think it was all, it was our position all along that the school board should be the one to make this call. But in order to get the votes to get through the house, you know, they, they compromised and went with the 20 hour rule, which of course is still far better than 700 hours and and that ridiculous Supreme court ruling. And I'm a former teacher uh, by the way, and I know that every teacher goes through a certain amount of training every year, and I calculated that 700 hours, if the ordinary an ordinary teacher has to go through 700 hours, given the amount of training they normally do in a year, it would take you around 20 years to do that training. So th- this is not about making it safer to carry in school. This is an attempt to kill this idea, to, to, pre- right. to prevent utterly anyone from carrying in schools. That That's the whole Bloomberg playbook here is let's not make the system better. Let's kill this program entirely. Well, that's right. You know, if they, if they can make it onerous, then nobody will go armed in school. And even the, you know, the, the Bloomberg backed folks were talking about, well, let's compromise, you know, let's make it a hundred hours. I mean, I, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the average school teacher can't fit a hundred hours of training on this in addition to everything else they do. The real question is, do we want our kids protected, especially out in the rural areas where if you call a police, it might take them 20 minutes to get to your school. Uh, And right now, you think about what's been in the news, Dean, with like the shooting up in the school in uh, Oxford, Michigan. Uh, Some of the stuff on social media where kids are challenging each other to bring firearms to school. I mean, it's a time right now where it's an open market for crazy people. Uh, and our kids are at risk in Ohio because of some awful ruling by our Supreme Court. 
So that brings us to HB 227, a constitutional carry bill. This is uh, one of uh, a couple bills that we've been working on. HB 227 has passed the House. And has it been introduced into the Senate? Or is it waiting? Well, it's been introduced into the Senate. It has not been referred to a Senate committee. Okay. So it's in the process and this is one of one of the two constitutional carry bills we've been working on. So I'm not sure what to say about this. Uh, th- this is obviously constitutional carry, whether it's this bill or the other bill. This is our number one priority. We want constitutional carry for lots of reasons. It can solve a lot of problems. It solves the notification problem, solves the licensing problem that we were having this year, and especially last year when uh, sheriff's offices closed down because of this whole pandemic thing when people trying were trying to figure that out it solves lots and lots of problems so this is absolutely at the top of our priority list rob do you have anything particular to say about uh this bill I mean, we've been reporting on it quite a bit yeah no i mean you know i think we've been conveying to legislators that we don't care which way they go you know they can pass house bill 227 or they can pass senate bill 215 which we're going to talk about in just a bit as long as they get it done and uh you know, we continue to encourage uh, gun owners to contact their legislators, and you don't even have to refer to a bill number. All you have to do is say, please pass constitutional carry, uh, and they'll get the message. They're, we've made a lot of noise, so senators and state representatives are well aware uh, that constitutional carry is our top priority. And because we have bills, and I'm skipping a little bit here, but because we have a bill that's moved through the House and a bill that's moved through the Senate, I think we've proven that we're at the stage now in Ohio where we have enough support to get this done. Yes. So either bill, as we explained earlier, either bill has to go through the whole process in both chambers, but we've proven that each chamber, the House and the Senate, has plenty of votes to get this passed. If they want to get it passed, it will pass. So we have two different bills we can work on, two different chances to move this through. And uh, we're going to keep working on that. So uh, let's just move forward here because we still have a lot of bills to cover. HB 243, knife preemption. This one has passed the House. This one I really don't have a lot to say about. Knife preemption is like gun preemption. Basically, it just changes the Ohio law so that in the section where it says that localities like cities— can't pass their own gun laws. Well, they can't pass their own knife laws either. That's essentially what it does. It's a pretty simple idea. Right. It, it just prevents, you know, you're a person that carries a, a knife, a pocket knife. You know, you go from a township to a village to a city to a county, and the laws could be different everywhere. So it's it's obviously the same arguing points that we have on firearm pre- uh, preemption. And we have HB 297. This is the Firearms Industry Non-Discrimination Act. Sponsor is Scott Wiggum. This one actually is pretty important. It's uh, dealing with the industry of firearms. However, it's something that seriously causes problems that I think a lot of gun owners don't see, but it affects them in ways that they don't really understand because especially in the uh, financial market, there's been a lot of discrimination. We've had that here where we've had credit card processing services uh, removed all of a sudden. We've had businesses contact us saying that they can't get loans. They have trouble processing credit cards. They have one kind of problem or another with a bank account. 
And this bill is an attempt to prevent that, to prevent the financial sector from discriminating against firearm businesses. Yes. And, and you know, Dean, this bill was recently heard in committee. We had sponsored testimony, which, of course, Buckeye Firearms Association testified in favor. But we heard horror stories that businesses have been subjected to simply because they deal in firearms. So in addition to banks making it harder for them to get credit, we found out about insurance companies that either won't insure firearms-related businesses or you know, have premiums that are exorbitant because they don't want to do that business. And of course, everybody's aware of the problems with big tech. So we heard a lot of stories about how Facebook won't carry any information about firearms, how uh, Instagram, same way. And so the bottom line is there is a official, unofficial, whatever you want to call it, campaign to diminish our ability to talk about firearms or to get services related to firearms commerce that ultimately threatens the Second Amendment. Right, because if you can't buy guns, if you can't buy ammunition, if you can't do commerce in the same way that everyone else does, that's obviously going to affect your rights. That's right. So then we have HB 325 to limit government power during emergencies, and this is one of two bills we introduced earlier in the year. And this one is one of our top priorities. Uh, Rob, uh, we've had three hearings on this one. I think it's moving really well. Uh, Just explain very briefly what this bill is all about. Sure. So, you know, what we found out when government swung into emergency mode March of 2020 in response to the COVID outbreak is that the federal and state and local governments all have sweeping power when they declare an emergency. And so we saw in Michigan, for example, the governor closed down gun stores. We saw in Washington state, the governor banning hunting uh, because of, you know, COVID fears. And as we just said, if you can't get access to a firearm, then you don't really have second amendment rights. And so Ohio was fortunate that we had a governor that didn't go down that road. But, you know, we won't always be fortunate to have that type uh, of decision by a governor. We could have a governor like Michigan next time who, as she said, she would shut down gun stores again under the same circumstance. So House Bill 325 just simply spells out in plain English, no matter what the emergency, whether it's a city or the county or or the whole state, that under no circumstances can the government shut down gun stores, training classes, uh, shooting ranges, uh, hunting-related businesses, your right to uh, carry concealed, processing of concealed handgun licenses, the whole nine yards that the government just can't do it. Uh, and so that's why, as you said, you know this is our this is our second highest priority or our one A priority for the year. Uh, after constitutional carry. And this bill and its companion bill, we've been told is the strongest, this is the strongest legislation of its kind anywhere in the country. When we started talking about this last year and we started writing it, we decided let's just go the whole nine yards. Let's make this as strong as we can to cover everything. And it's not just guns, it's hunting, fishing, trapping, it's everything. All of these things are declared essential and they cannot be infringed in any way during any kind of emergency. That's right. 
So that brings us to HB 455. We've not really talked about this much. There's been proponent hearing. That's about it. This is to avoid charges for carrying concealed in prohibited places. I, I think it's pretty straightforward. This is just about if you if you happen to be in a place where they don't want you to carry, you're not going to be charged in a serious way. They can just ask you to leave, and that's pretty much it. You're not going to fall into a legal trap if you happen to carry where you're not supposed to. Yeah, we're not going to make you into a felon for an honest mistake. So I spoke to the sponsor, Representative Reggie Stoltzfus, at his sponsor testimony. And that's the that's all they've had so far, just sponsor testimony. But he did a good job explaining to the committee that, you know, if someone makes an honest mistake, they're asked to leave, they leave. I mean, we don't want to charge them as felons, and, and the law overreaches currently, and this would uh, correct that. Yeah. there's You know, a lot of these laws that we're talking about are trying to correct traps that are in the law where people are not really trying to do anything wrong. They just commit what we would call status crimes. There's nothing inherently bad about what they're doing. It's just the law says you can't do it, and, and, and people don't always understand the technicalities in the law, so they just fall into the trap. That's right. So this, this is one way to fix that. So next up, HB 471. This one is fairly recent. The sponsor is Al Catrona, and this is to exempt firearms and ammunition from sales tax, which is actually kind of a nice idea. West Virginia did this, and when you buy a firearm, when you buy ammunition, you're not going to pay sales tax on it. Right, right, and we're, we're talking about roughly 7.5%. So I'd ask anybody, you know, if you're going to go buy a shotgun tomorrow or a handgun tomorrow and you found out you could get it for 7.5% discount, you know, would that be an enticement? I'm sure it would. But the more fundamental question, Dean, is why should the government be taxing a constitutional right. Uh, they don't tax free speech, but they tax the Second Amendment. And so that's, I think, Representative Katrona's primary argument and one, of course, that we support. Well, it's like when you go to the grocery store. If you look at your bill very carefully, there are certain items that are taxed, certain items that are not taxed. I think if you buy essential items like eggs or milk, which are pretty basic foods, you're not paying tax on that, if I'm, if I'm correct. Yes. But there are other things. If you buy a pair of pants or shoes or whatever, you might pay tax on that. So, I mean, there's already the precedent that essential things are not taxed because you pretty much have to have them. Other things that are not quite as essential, I'm not sure where you draw the line, but those things can be taxed. I think if anything is essential, you're right, a constitutional right. Why are we taxing a constitutional right? I think that's a great bill. I, I certainly hope it moves, and we're fully in support of that. Yes. So this brings us to SB 156 for knife preemption, and we're now moving into the Senate bills. So SB 156 is a companion bill to a bill we talked about earlier. This one has passed the Senate, and like we said before, it adds knives to the preemption section of Ohio law. And so cities would not be able to pass their own knife laws, just like they can't pass their own gun laws. So I'm not sure we really need to say anything more about that. SB 185, this is a companion bill to the emergency power bill in the House, which we already talked about. This one has passed the Senate, and we're obviously fully in support of that. And then that brings us to SB 215, 
Terry Johnson's bill on constitutional carry. So this one is very similar to HB 227. It's constitutional carry. It fixes the notification, quote-unquote, promptly so that you just have to answer a question by the officer. Very similar to 227. It's written a little differently. I'm not sure if we really need to comment much on that. Rob, do we have anything to say? that This one has passed the Senate recently. Right. Right. It just passed this past week. Uh, you know, I think the only thing we really should discuss, Dean, is just, okay, so the House has passed a bill. Now the Senate's passed a bill, but they're two different bills. So what happens from here, I think, probably is where we need to head next. This brings us to Senate Bill 265. This is another companion bill, or I think it's a companion bill, to uh, to the other one uh, that we just discussed to exempt firearms and ammunition from sales tax. Uh, this is one of these situations where you have a bill in the House and in the Senate simultaneously. Right. This one has had no hearings. And then finally, SB 266. This is the civil immunity bill for self-defense for nonprofits. Now, we've not really talked a lot about this. It's not had any hearings. Sponsored by Tim Schaefer. I actually really like this bill, Rob, SB 266. When the law was written on concealed carry, it protected businesses and other entities in case someone acts in self-defense but they left out nonprofits. And so I really see this bill as a fix-it bill. I think the intent was to make sure that you had civil immunity across the board. They just didn't mention nonprofits. So, I, I mean, I'm fully in support of this bill. It would help out BFA if we had an event, for example, and someone exercised self-defense at one of our events. That would apply. And I would consider this a fix-it bill for an oversight in the current law. So, uh, Rob, those are all the bills, 15 in total. And I just wanted to finish up with some questions here. We've been getting questions from our listeners and from our supporters, and I just had a few here. I thought I'd go over one of them, which applies to some of what we've been talking about, is why don't legislators move just one bill on constitutional carry? Now, I understand that from... The ordinary person's perspective, they're thinking, well, you know, why don't all these legislators just get together, if they support constitutional carry, write a bill, pass it through both chambers, the House and the Senate, and be done with it? You know, why are they introducing multiple bills? It's a great question from the outside looking in, right? You know, I mean, I think senators and state representatives, they want to let their constituents know that they are strong Second Amendment supporters. They, They like to see... They like to have their constituents see that they're the authors of pro-gun bills. So, you know, that's why you've got, you know, two constitutional carry bills, two emergency power bills, two knife preemption bills, and, you know, so on. Sometimes they, you know, they coordinate and they get together. But more often you see what we're dealing with this year, and, and that is that both chambers have members that are very interested. And, you know, I guess... If you want to put a positive spin on it, I mean, you know, they're all fighting over little old me. You know, that's what we want. You know, they've got, we've got a lot of guys that are pro-gun, and this makes us have to uh, to work a little harder, but ultimately it's a sign of support. So then that begs the question, what happens when you have more than one bill? So we have a couple of constitutional carry bills. One's passed the Senate. One's passed the House. These are not intentionally companion bills. They were introduced separately. They were written differently. 
what happens when you have two bills that kind of cross in the night, so to speak, and if they were to move through both chambers, you end up with two bills, what happens? Yeah, so this really gets down to uh, information you see on the you know national evening news doesn't apply to how Ohio works. Because you know, we hear about stuff in Congress and they say, oh, you know, this, this is in reconciliation, right? They're going to reconcile the tax uh, bill, et cetera. Ohio doesn't do reconciliation. Uh, only one bill can become law. So only one bill can ultimately make its way to the governor's desk on the subject of constitutional carry. So it either has to be Senate Bill 215 or it has to be House Bill 227. So who gets to move their bill? Well, that, that gets down to negotiations and wrangling between the two chambers. Uh, most often it gets settled through conversations between the top leadership, the president of the Senate, the Speaker of the House. Honestly, I think it gets down to, okay, you guys get to do this one, and then we're going to get to do this other priority we've got and to, in some equitable fashion that allows each chamber to take on something that uh, is of big importance to them. Uh, so, you know, ultimately that's what will work out between these two bills. The good thing is this. The entire House is on the record voting for constitutional carry. The entire Senate is on the record voting for constitutional carry. So it's tremendously unlikely that one of these two bills won't make the full trip because they've already taken the risk. They've already planted the flag in the ground and declared themselves to be supporters. So I, I think it's in their best political interest. It's certainly the way we see it as well, that they need to move a bill. And I think this is the best environment we've had in many years to get this done. Yeah. I, I mean, we're farther along on constitutional carry right now than we have ever been, ever. Yes. Yes. And I view this as a positive thing. Look, it's politics. That's right. And working with legislators, no insult intended to anybody, but it's a little like herding cats, right? I mean, they everybody has their own constituents. They all have their own priorities. Uh, from our point of view, we're trying to solve problems, but they're in the business of politics, and this is how it works. It's it's not a nice, neat package that all gets wrapped up in a bow. That you know that politics enters into it, and that's part of what lobbying is all about. You wouldn't need us if this stuff just happened easily and quickly. And so we're just trying to keep things on track, and we're very happy with where we are. Yes, absolutely. As I said, best environment we've had probably forever in terms of getting this done, right? And so it'll work itself out as long as we stay on top of it. And that's the one thing I can say is that, you know, this is BFA's number one priority, and we will be all over this concept until it lands on Governor Mike DeWine's desk. And let's just be clear here. We've been working really hard on this. I mean, on an almost daily basis for the entire year. So we started out the year talking to legislators, talking to leadership and saying, look, this is our priority this year. We expect this to pass. We'd love it to pass before the end of the year, but obviously, you know, before the elections at the latest, and it's been nonstop all year long. Even if we're not reporting on it, we're out there working on it and doing that heavy lifting. Like we said, 99% of the work happens before the hearings even begin for these bills and it sort of happens in all the silent spaces right so you know when we're reporting on a hearing or we're reporting on a vote or whatever the work is really around those events and making sure those bills 
keep moving. Right. So I, you know, the, the, we set the table early, Dean. We were very fortunate with this legislative session to have two brand new leaders, right? So we had a new Speaker of the House and a new President of the Senate, and that gave us a chance to visit with both of them and talk about our priorities. And so those meetings took place, I want to say, in September, October of 2020, in which we expressed that constitutional carry would be our central goal and that the emergency powers would be our second goal. And uh, setting the table that way uh, and having that open line of communication is what really got us off to a good start. So let me move on to another kind of interesting question that I got just, I think it was yesterday. We're recording this on a Friday, so I think this was yesterday that I got this by email and someone was reading, I think, Johnson's bill, SB 215 on constitutional carry. And there was a question about if you get constitutional carry, are you going to then be prohibited from carrying in a restaurant or bar with a liquor license or are you going to be uh, prohibited from carrying in your vehicle in some way if you don't actually have a license? So we went back and forth a little bit, and I pointed out how the bill you know, is written and how bills are written in general. And both of the constitutional carry bills, the idea behind both of these is that if we get constitutional carry, wherever you can carry and however you can carry with a license— you'll be able to do exactly the same thing without a license. So it's not like you're a second-class concealed carrier without a license. Everything is the same. The license is just optional. You have it or you don't have it, and all your rights, all your privileges, all the rules are exactly the same. Right. You know, the only difference in terms of your ability now, if you are a CHL holder versus a person who doesn't have the permit, has to do with out-of-state reciprocity. Right. So if you're carrying just in Ohio, everything's identical. If you want to carry outside to some other state, then you're going to need the license because that's where the reciprocity is, with the license. Yes. And so the our goal from the beginning was not to eliminate the license, but just to make it optional. So it's there if you want it. I, for one, will keep it. I have family outside Ohio. I want to make sure I can carry to the places where I have to go. I think a lot of other people are going to continue to get that license as well. I do too. I do too, and it's a good idea for those that need to have that ability. Uh, but for those who, you know, maybe maybe just a, a situation pops up where you need a firearm, you know, this, this bill makes it to where you don't have to ask the government's permission. You don't have to submit to a background check. You don't have to take a class. You can immediately exercise the rights that are written in the Constitution. This just makes Ohio live up to the words that are in the Constitution. Right. Keep and bear. A lot of people forget the bear part, and we're in a Supreme Court case that we're actually involved in right now. We submitted an uh, amicus brief, and we'll get a ruling on that at some point next year. But it's keep and bear arms. That means that you can have guns and you can carry guns. That's essentially what it boils down to, and we believe that that is a constitutional right. Well, Rob, I've got just one more question here, and this one kind of makes me smile because, uh, honestly, this is a question I ask myself all the time. Why are gun laws so hard to read and understand? <laughs> well, I think we can thank our lawyer friends for this, right? So 
whether it's uh, whether it's lawsuits to attack gun laws or it's uh, making new gun laws, you know, lawyers get in there and they want to parse every word, dot every I, cross every T, and ultimately, it keeps the lawyers employed uh, interpreting these things for us. So I've often wondered the same thing, not just about gun laws, but about all laws. I it would strike me that things could be crystal clear, but let's be fair, Dean. I thought the law on armed personnel in schools was crystal clear. And, you know, our Supreme Court ran amok and, and interpreted what I thought was plain law. What, frankly, Governor DeWine, when he was Attorney General, said was plain law, they didn't interpret as plain law. So this is how we get messy laws and, you know, ultimately have to sort it out. I wish it weren't so. It often makes things frustrating, but I just think that's just a fact of life when you've got you know, so much parsing of words, and uh, it just, it kind of takes me back to the mid-90s. Didn't somebody famous say something like, it all depends on what the meaning of the word is, is? Yeah, yeah, we don't need to talk about that individual. (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone knows who we're we're talking about, and that's not subject matter that we want to cover on this podcast. No. So, uh, yeah, uh, and, and as somebody who spent about a quarter of a century making a living as a writer, you know, I look, I look at the laws and I just, it makes the eyeballs pop out of the head, you know, on, on how some things are written, but that's the way it is. And we have lawyers who work for us and who help us understand some of these things when it gets a little too far in the weeds. But uh, fortunately, at least with constitutional carry, those bills are, are pretty simple, especially 215 they're actually fairly straightforward in the way they deal with it. So sometimes they're easy to read, sometimes they're not. So, Rob, we're at about the end of the year. We appreciate all the work that you've done for us throughout 2021, and we hope that next year before the election we're going to be seeing some of these laws being signed. So uh, we'll talk again soon, and I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Uh, You too, Dean. It's been my pleasure, and uh, I have high hopes for next year. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.